Pop Culture Affidavit Episode 59, Batman and Superman, The Rise and Fall of the World's Finest. Hello and welcome to episode 59 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I'm doing a totally gimmicky episode in that I'm going to be one of what feels like a billion podcasts trying to hop on the bandwagon of what is sure to be the most talked about movie of the end of March 2016, Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice which premieres on March 25th. What am I going to do? Well, I'm just going to cover a couple of Batman Superman team-ups comics, specifically issues of the classic series World's Finest, which was the long-running Batman Superman team-up book that finally said adieu in 1986 before the post-crisis revamp. But before I do that, I have two emails. The first is from Luke Giaconetti, who you may have heard me talking war comics with in the latest episode of my podcast miniseries, 80 Years of DC Comics. He wrote in about episode 14 of that series, which was an episode about PSA comics. His email is titled, The following email brought to you by the Earth Destruction Directive and the National Ad Council. Tom, just wanted to drop you a quick line about your episode taking a look at DC's PSA comics. Being born in 1980, I remember lots of those classic anti-drug PSAs from the era, and I remain a big fan of PSAs to this day. There's some great ones out there now, especially with more leeway for graphic and violent content, and with YouTube, they are all right at your fingertips. I have never read any of the Teen Titans PSAs, although I do remember reading about the Protector and his unusual origin online on CBR or something similar. One area where I div- you and I diverge is the Titans, as every time I try to read the title, I feel my brain shutting down. But f- for a sort of oddball side note, those sound like fun. I will have to see if I can find them, maybe online, as you do sometimes find these freebie giveaways slash PSAs scanned. Now, the Vertigo one with Death and John Constantine I remember well. I did not get that at school, somehow imagining Catholic high school would 
balk at giving out an AIDS awareness comic starring a character named Death, but it was reprinted in the, in the back matter of the first trade paperback of Death, The High Cost of Living. I had that single series in a single issues, but I did buy the trade as a gift for a friend and read the PSA there. And Luke, yes, I have that PSA in there as well. What works so well about the Death PSA is that it is straight talk from the most straight-talking DC character of all time. When Constantine says, this is dead embarrassing regarding the banana, Death's response of, which would you rather be, a little embarrassed or a lot dead, is perfect. The PSA is not preachy nor demanding, it is simply educational. It also has a great line which addresses the topic that I don't think I've ever seen another AIDS PSA. Oh, and of course, there's another side effect to unsafe sex I mentioned at the beginning. It's called life. Good stuff right there. Anyway, I've been much, very much digging this series and cannot wait to hear more. Keep up the excellent work. Thanks, Luke. Uh, thanks for writing in, Luke. I agree with you completely about the death PSA. It's frankness and honesty without going full preachy is what I think helps it hold up after more than 20 years instead of becoming the butt of the joke, like some of those unfortunate anti-drug PSA comics. I'm glad you enjoyed the episode, and I'm glad you have enjoyed the series. It's been a really fun series to put together, even if it has gone on for more than a year. Sorry about that, everyone. And thanks for coming on to talk war comics with me. My next email is from Buddy Smith. It's about the most recent episode, which was Movie Songs. He writes, Hello, Mr. Tom. I've been a big fan of the show after stumbling on the Choo Choo Freaks, and your show has been a highlight whenever a new episode pops up. With this episode, it was a good selection of songs chosen for each decade. While some of them I might not be a fan, it was still a very good listen in hearing how they were made for the films. With that, I felt there were some that would be good for a part two somewhere down the line. The first is Rainbow Connection from the Muppets movie. While Staying Alive really captured the era, I feel the song would also kind of capture the feeling of that era as well. Plus, the Muppets really came into the scene in the 70s, and I also feel a big pop... And I feel are also a big pop culture icon of that era. That's true. The next one is from the movie Labyrinth. With this film, the dearly missed David Bowie did a number of songs for this movie, while some would go on to the dance magic... Dance song is the most remembered. I would say the world as the world falls down is the better song as the song used in the weird dreamlike stance. The main character enters with it. The song has a very soft drama like sound, but when listening to the lyric is a very dark song. I'll have to check that out. I have not seen Labyrinth in nearly 30 years, so it's probably worth another listen. The next is from a movie from the 80s that a lot of people might not have heard about, but the song is one that is remembered. From Streets of Fire, it's Dan Hartman, I Can Dream About You. With the movie's weird fix of, mix of future Blade Runner visuals with a 50s look, it's one of the most unique films ever made in my opinion. While it bombed that the box office type movie was a hit overseas, especially with Japan, as it influenced the number of animes in the 80s and being the main inspiration for the video game Final Fight. But the one thing remembered from the film is is the song. I'm sure the movie performed by the fake bland, band The Blasters, the song was actually sung by Dan Hartman with his very 50s style mixed with 80s sound. It was definitely the highlight of the film. Finally, with another song from the movie no one knew it was made for, from Real Genius, it's Everybody Wants to Rule the World. It's one of Val Kilmer's very few comedy roles. The movie is about a bunch of geniuses at a college getting into hijinks and stopping the dean from selling a laser built by them to the military. 
the film film is actually pretty funny with Val giving a pretty good performance and actually being pretty funny. But the one thing people don't know is that the song was created for the film. It's funny while the movie has gone on to be cult classic, the song is probably remembered. Probably one that people don't know was created for a film. Well, that's all for me. Keep up the good work. Thanks for your email, buddy. A number of those are great songs, especially Rainbow Connection, which did just miss that list. Um, I didn't know everybody wants the world, rule the world was originally from the Real Genius soundtrack. I figured it was just simply uh, from a mid-80s Tears for Fears album because I first heard it on the radio and then obtained it through one of the various 80s compilation CDs I bought years ago. So that's pretty cool. Like I said, there's a part two out there somewhere, as well as other parts to other Music Countdown episodes. I'm really glad you have been enjoying the show. If you've got something new to say, please feel free to email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or go to the Facebook page and leave a comment. As for this subject's main subject matter, well, that's coming up after this. Stick around. Justice League International, Bwahaha Podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis will be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Dr. Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Adam. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort. And many, many more. Justice League International. Blah ha ha podcast. Coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? So I guess I could give a huge introduction and history on the subject matter of the episode because I'll be talking about World's Finest and Superman and Batman. But I'm going to let someone else do that for me because the first comic book I'm going to cover is the World's Finest Comics number 271, which is titled The Secret Origins of the Superman and Batman Team. And on the inside cover of that comic is a text piece by this of the same by written by the issue's writer, Roy Thomas. It's lengthy. It's a good summary of the relationship between two of DC's most famous heroes up until that point, and that was in 1981. World's Finest Comics, as longtime DC readers already know, has had a lengthy and honored career as a showcase title for Superman and Batman, the two most famous comic book superheroes of all time. The magazine began actually as New York's World's Fair Comics, or just World's Fair Comics for short, two special 100-page issues printed in 1939-1940 in conjunction with a huge world exposition then taking place in Flushing, New York, and the end of the city's subway line. Those two special issues were a success, such a success, even though the first of them contained only Superman and a host of lesser heroes with no Batman, that the powers that were decided to make such a magazine a regular thing. Thus, World's Best Comics debuted in the spring of 1941, starring Superman and Batman in separate stories, with lots of minor leaguers in between. 100 big pulpy pages for just 15 cents, which was already a nickel more than most comics cost in those long-gone pre-inflation days. With issue number two, the title was changed to the more euphonious World's Finest Comics, and things really got rolling. Still, for a decade, the Man of Steel never bumped into the Cape Crusader and or his boy wonder buddy, except on symbolic covers of the magazine, throwing baseballs at Hitler's and Mussolini, straddling the big guns on an American battleship, or just clowning around. 
Their one or two real meetings on the printed page had occurred at sessions of the famous Justice Society of America in All-Star Comics, number 8 and number 37. The sole exception recounted briefly in this issue was the famous, if low-key, tale in Superman number 76, The Mightiest Team in the World, in which the pair exchanged secret identities and solved the shipboard stolen diamonds mystery. Then in 1954, some wise person made the decision to change World's Finest from a giant-sized comic down to a regular-sized one, and of course the best way to do that was obviously to team up Superman and Batman in a continuing feature. So this they did, starting with issue number 71's tale entitled Batman, Double for Superman. The merger, need to be said, was an instant success, and this writer, for one, can still remember the thrill of beholding the cover of that initial 10-cent issue whereon Batman, in quotes, leaped into the path of a firing pistol to take a bullet meant for Superman, quotes. The Superman-Batman co-stars lasted for some two decades, mostly under the recurring banner, your two favorite heroes, Superman and Batman and Robin, in one adventure together. I always figured that since Robin's name was simply printed as a kind of adjunct to the Batman logo, he didn't count. But still, the sheer arithmetic of the thing bothered me for years. In the 1970s, for a year or so there, Kal-El dropped his alliance with the Batman, who, after all, was already teaming up with the other heroes and their brave and the bold, in favor of one-shot furries and other, alongside other DC stars, beginning with The Flash. But there was some sort of chemistry in the Superman-Batman team that would just not be denied, so they were reunited in World's Finest number 215, leaving it to DC Comics Presents to handle Superman's one-issue stands. Batman's back! And Superman's got him! And so... As Kern Vonnegut is fond of saying, it goes. Strangely, though, the teaming of Supes and Bats in Superman number 76 and World's Finest number 71 was not the first full-fledged joint adventure of those costume stalwarts, as far as many of us were concerned. No, their real origin as a team, it always seemed to us, occurred not in a comic book at all, but more's the pity, but on a 1945 radio program. The last son of Krypton, you see, had had his own regular radio series since the early 40s in various formats. This is neither the time nor the place to go into that show's star-spangled history, but it is instructive that it was also on radio, not in comics, that Kryptonite first appeared. The deadly substance was then sandwiched into the comics themselves a year or so later. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. It was on that fateful day of March 3rd, 1945, on the Mutual Radio Network, that Superman responded to a message left furtively on Clark Kent's desk and wound up rescuing Robin, the boy wonder, who desperately needed to help find the missing Batman. This, of course, is part of the issue story in which Superman sees as a dream. Superman and Robin teamed up to locate the Cape Crusader, then the three of them ganged up on the evil Zoltan and his minions, as shown herein. After that, the dynamic duo queer appeared quite regularly as guest stars on the Superman radio show through the remainder of the 40s, even though they never got their own program till TV discovered them in the middle of, 19, of the 1960s. Thus it was that, when former World's Finest editor Jack C. Harris invited me to plot a special 48-page story recapturing all of Superman and Batman's various team origins, including several which had been anachronistically placed earlier than the events of Superman number 76, my instant rejoinder was, what about the radio meeting? That was the real origin of the team, you know, and it's never been adapted into comics forum. Jack enthusiastically agreed, and so he decided to do more than simply retell old stories in the format of a new one. We would also bring in what amounts to the origin of the Earth 2 Superman Batman team, the one that happened in a parallel world, first introduced exactly 20 years ago in the pages of The Flash. You know all about Earth 2, don't you? The Earth on which there's a Justice Society rather than the Justice League, on which there was never a Superboy since Clark Kent donned his colorful costume when he was full-grown. 
and now the earth in which Superman, Batman, and Robin, who had met at most in passing before, first joined forces to smash the dastardly schemes of a guy named Zoltan. For good measure, Jack and I decided we would use two, the most famous villain created for the series, none other than the mysterious kryptonite-radiating Atom Man, spelling arbitrary, who had created such a sensation in a series of shows in 1946 that his name was even appropriated by Lex Luthor in 1950 as his alter ego in the second movie Superman movie serial Atom Man versus Superman. See why we said our choice of spelling was arbitrary. Since the original Atom Man did not have a costume, we, though, we decided to give him one. The one, very one worn by Superman's, quote, partner Power Man in World's Finest number 94. Since that Power Man turned out to be a robot, we figured he wouldn't mind. My own enthusiasm, as well as artist Rich Buckler's, having been fueled and turned by Jax now, I set to work listening list, to listen to everything I could find on tape of the old Superman, Batman, and Superman, Atom Man encounters, courtesy of my two good friends, Don Glutt and Jim Harmon. Between Jim's book, The Great Radio Heroes, which covered the first Superman-Batman meeting in depth, and some tapes supplied by Hitbull, Him, and Don, I was able to listen to some of the episodes of both adventures, but not enough to satisfy me. A quick call then to still another old-time radio expert, Larry Ivy, who filled me in on a handful of all-important details about Adam Man, and the rest is comic mag history. A hearty, heartfelt thanks to Don, Jim, and Larry, and my sincerest apologies to them for any minor flesh wounds we have may accidentally inflicted upon the radio dramas by having to adapt them in a few relatively few pages into comics format. Someday soon, perhaps, if reader response is rapid enough, maybe World's Finest new and equally zealous editor Len Wein will be able to lay his hands either on all those old radio shows or upon the scripts if they still exist somewhere on our Earth. If he does, I'll be standing right there at the head of the line begging to be allowed to adapt them as well. For now, though, it's enough that we've tried, the whole lot of us, to do justice not only to a half dozen or so very important comic book stories, a few of which seem mutually exclusive at first glance, but also to that long-vanished Superman radio show on which so many aspects of the Man of Steel's mythos first saw the light of day. Need we add that it was a heck of a lot of fun? Roy Thomas. So the comic book itself, World's Finest number 271, was released on June 18, 1981, with a cover date of September, and the cover, which is beautifully drawn by George Perez, shows Superman, Batman, and Robin busting through the cover, literally tearing up an open gallery of classic Superman, Batman team-up covers. This comic's a whole dollar. Why? Well, below the advertisements tell us to see the film Superman 2, which we have, we have an all-new book-length novel celebrating the 200th anniversary of the Superman-Batman team. In the bottom of the cover, we have revealed at last the secret origins of Comicdom's greatest team. And here are your credits, which open with a peculiar caption box. 200 issues ago, the Superman-Batman team was first formed in the pages of World's Finest number 71. Or was it? Today, at last, we find out courtesy of Roy Thomas, writer, and Rich Buckler, penciler, Frank McLaughlin, inker, Carl Gafford, colorist, John Costanza, letterer, Len Wein, editor, with special thanks to for the contributions of Jack C. Harris and E. Nelson Bridwell. Somewhere in the nether in the nebulous netherworld of dream, a scene of a startling clarity, a stark tableau of death, and which, like all dreams, has its effects in what we persist against all evidence in calling real life. Superman has a nightmare that involves a foe blasting him with kryptonite from his hands. The villain ignores Superman's pleas to stop, and then comes in for a death blow when our hero wakes from his nightmare. 
We think about how the dream was so real, and how the person in the dream, someone called Adam Man, looked familiar, although we can't remember how. He turns on the TV and he hears about a fire in Gotham City and flies off where Batman is on the scene. Superman helps the fire department and the Cape Crusaders out by putting the fire out with water found in a water tower. And when the smoke and dust clear, the firemen report that they have found some sort of metal coffin in the middle of the flames. Superman notices that the symbol of the coffin is the same symbol that Adam Man had in his dreams and he tries to examine it with his x-ray vision, but he can't because the coffin is lined with lead. Then the coffin springs open and out pops Adam Man, saying that he's waited decades to get his revenge on the Man of Steel, and his revenge will be tonight! Since Adam Man is radiated with kryptonite, Superman goes down easy and then the villain makes quick work of Batman, but after the Dark Knight detective says something about Adam Man being a robot, he then heads off, saying goodbye in German. Superman tries to get up, but he can't, and he begins to dream again, this time of himself standing on a dock in Metropolis and finding the unconscious body of Robin, the boy Wonder, in a lifeboat drifting in the harbor. He rescues him, and while he flies away, he tells Superman that his name is Dick Grayson, something he doesn't know. And as Batman and Robin don't know who Superman is either, when Robin finally comes to, he tells Superman that Batman has disappeared courtesy of a villain named Zoltan. After some quick detective work, which involved looking up Zoltan in the phone book, Superman and Robin fly to a wax museum where Batman has been turned into a wax statue himself. Superman punches him out of it, and they all stop Zoltan and his thugs. Back in the present, Superman wakes up, and he and Batman fly off with Superman telling his friend about his dreams and how he thinks they were connected. Perhaps they have something to do with how they met. Superman flashes back to a time when he was Superboy, and he met with a young Bruce Wayne who was working with a criminal named Tad Linus, or Thad Linus, and used figuring out Superboy's identity as a way to hone his detective skills. Of course, Bruce, being an honest person, didn't give Linus the information, and the secret was safe, although he'd return years later to try and blackmail the Man of Steel. Superman then thinks of a time when he and Robin teamed up before he met Batman, and they tackled a mystery involving a cosmic clock. There was time travel. Then... Then he tells of another time he met Bruce Wayne when he was Superboy. Bruce was a transfer student at Smallville High, and he caught the eye of Lana Lang, whom he befriended and whom gave him a fox mask so he could fight crime while there. And when Superboy encounters him, he figures out that his mysterious fighting fox is Bruce Wayne, and Bruce makes an offer for them to work together. Bruce later figures out by analyzing voice patterns that Clark Kent is Superboy. Superboy uses a time telescope to show that he's right, and in the future they'll be great friends, but then he hypnotizes Batman to forget everything. They would meet one more time as teenagers to foil a gambling ring before meeting as adults when Clark and Lois are asked to look at a mysterious Batman of Gotham. Superman is about to launch into that story when he hears something on a local radio and discovers that Adam Man is on the rampage in Metropolis. Batman says that he needs to go with him, and as they head off, Batman thinks of how, in all of his reminiscing, Superman never mentioned Power Man, who is a robot that Superman created in a previous adventure, and he flashes back to the very first meeting of Batman and Robin and Superman, which involved Batman and Robin rescuing Superman from mid-air fall after he'd been shot with liquid kryptonite. They foil those crooks by having Batman impersonate Superman so that when he's shot with a kryptonite, there's no effect, and then Superman and Robin are able to move in. Back in the present, Superman asks Batman, what's he thinking of? And Batman wonders why he can't remember Power Man, a robot Superman had built to be a new teammate because of a case that was potentially very dangerous or even lethal to Batman and Robin. They arrive in Metropolis where they see Adam Man atop the Daily Planet building holding the famous splitting globe. Superman fashions a lead shield and tries to reason with him, saying that he doesn't know why Adam Man is on the hunt for revenge, especially since he's obviously 
from the 1940s, and Adam Man isn't having it and throws the globe at our hero. They begin to fight. Batman helps some reporters on a nearby rooftop and then tries to goad Adam Man into coming after him, effectively stopping the super beatdown. Adam Man throws the Man of Steel to the ground, vows revenge, and flies away, saying that he will meet him at noon the next day at Sportsman Stadium. The next day, they get ready for the confrontation, with Superman feeling a little weak. This time, it's Superman who remembers how they first met, which was on a cruise. Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne were forced to room together, and when there was danger, they were both forced to change into their costumes, and that revealed everything. Superman makes a comment about how such a minor case was where they learned one another's identities, but they really didn't become a team until later, when basically Lois figured out that Clark is Superman, you know, that one time, and they had Superman and Batman switch identities to fool her while also taking down a group of criminals, you know, as you do. Finally, they turn their attention to the matter at hand, which is figuring out who this Adam Man is and trying to figure out how he got so powerful. It's at that moment in a hidden cave across the river from Metropolis that Adam Man takes off his mask to reveal himself as Heinrich Melch, an ex-Nazi who has been waiting 35 years to get his revenge on Superman. Back in 1945, Melch signed up for an experiment to turn him into a living kryptonite weapon in order to defeat Superman, and he flew to Metropolis where he got a job at the Daily Star and soon fought Superman, although the exertion from the fight caused his heart to stop. So Superman buried him in the coffin that was dug up at the beginning of the issue. We then head to the stadium where Superman is waiting. The fight begins. Adaman seems to be winning, and then Superman flies him into the air and vibrates the two of them, and when they return to the ground, the stadium is empty. Superman is weak from all of this, and the kryptonite as well, but he's saved by Superman. And Adaman is knocked out by Batman and Robin, the ex-boy wonder. That's right, they're now on Earth 2, and it seems that Adam Man somehow is buried here on Earth 2, woke up on Earth 1, and was trying to get revenge on the wrong Superman. Batman had been the one to figure it out. Sportsman Stadium only exists on Earth 2. Batman and Robin exchange friendly handshakes, and then the Superman of Earth 1 flies off with his friend, and there's joy today in Metropolis, for the world's finest team is back at bat. So before I get into my review, I should get a little bit of background when it comes to my experience with Superman-Batman team-ups. I first encountered the idea of Superman teaming up with Batman sometime in the early 1980s when I was watching the Super Friends on a regular basis. Then around 1990 or so, I started getting into comics for real and I got a copy of The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told, which you can hear me discuss with Michael Bailey on a very old episode of Bailey's Batman Podcast. I think it was like episode four or so. And in that collection, there's a story called The Origin of the Superman-Batman Team, where Superman replacing Batman and Robin with a new hero named Power Man causes the dynamic duo to think on the first time they ever teamed up with the Man of Steel. That first meeting featured Batman disguising himself as Superman in order to get the drop on thugs with kryptonite guns. And the Power Man thing was a ruse because Power Man was a robot and Superman was using him so they didn't put Batman and Robin in danger. In a sense, both of the stories are contained within this issue, and the, and the way that this issue's main story serves as a framing device for the backstory reminds me of your average sitcom clip show. You know what I mean. Something happens during the course of the episode that causes all of the main characters to start remembering when a particular thing happened that might be related, somehow, even if it's tangentially, to the main problem. Friends used to do this all the time in its last few seasons, right before the season finale. And that really is what's being done here. Let's establish some basic conflict that winds up having our heroes flashing back to past cases. And this should be cheesy, but I think if you're going to have anybody do it the right way, it is Roy Thomas. 
In fact, I think that one of the only real drawbacks of the writing is that Thomas seems to be cr- trying to cram every iteration of the same story into one cohesive plotline in a way that doesn't create any weird inconsistency or continuity errors, and I think it weighs it down just a little. Don't get me wrong, he does an excellent job throughout the issue, but there are moments when Superman and Batman go into flashback mode where I could almost see Roy Thomas checking a box on a checklist saying, okay, we covered that one, let's do the next one. On the flip side, I honestly like how he made an effort to include not only all of the classic stories from the Golden Age into this Bronze Age tale, but how he managed to include Earth 2, which is where a number of the stories originated. Plus, he sort of Easter-egged Earth 2, Earth 2 when he, because when he went to Earth 2 for the first time in the story, he didn't put any odd narration box that tells us we are on Earth 2 or explains what Earth 2 is. He simply allowed the reader to figure that out from the context clues. The Daily Star, the way Rich Buckler drew Superman's S, for instance. Speaking of the art, by the way, it is gorgeous. I think I first encountered Rich Buckler when he filled in on an issue of the New Teen Titans. In fact, I want to say it was issue 35 of the original Wolfman Perez series, which I would have gotten out of a back issue bin for about a buck 50 or a buck 75 back in 91 or 92. I remember back then not thinking there was anything jarring about the change in artists because Buckler and Perez had a lot of similarities, unlike when Kurt Swan filled in at the beginning of the series and the difference was noticeable. If I recall correctly, I think that Buckler, in a way, was Perez's mentor during some of his early years at Marvel, but don't quote me on that. Anyway, the point the point is that you have a gorgeous Perez cover, and the interior art doesn't disappoint, as both characters are drawn to, well, they look how you'd expect them to look, and they look like strong superheroes. Plus, Buckler has a handle on action in a way that is dynamic and fun for this era of comics. In fact, reading this comic reminds me of the days where I would take a comic off the shelf at the local stationery store and I'd flip through it. In fact, had I been paying attention in 1981 when I was all of four years old, I think I would have asked my dad to buy me this book even if it was a dollar. It's perfect kid bait, which is what I love about it. Incidentally, this is a comic I've always wanted. Uh, the reason for that goes back to the finest, the first comic that I covered on Comics Prehistory, which is a series of blog posts I'm doing up as the lead-up to the origin story miniseries starting later this year. The comic I covered in that post was The Brave and the Bold, number 182, which is a team-up between Batman and the Robin of Earth 2. Somewhere in that issue, there is a reference that says that the events of the issue obviously take place before World's Finest number 271. Because of that reference, I wanted to know what the story in World's Finest number 271 was in order to understand the reference. The reference basically is the end of this particular story when Batman and the Earth 2 Robin work together to help Superman take down the Atom Man. They're very friendly. And in the Brave and the Bold story, they're actually sniping at one another quite a bit. But they reconcile at the end and have, they have a mutual respect for one another. So it makes sense that this takes place after they've patched things up. It is overall a really fun comic. And it's a throwback to the days when these two characters were such great friends and were constantly teaming up and having fun doing it. I've got another issue of World's Finest coming up. And I normally I would take to, I would uh, take a look at the ads before I get to that. But actually, there are no ads in this issue. That's a good deal for a dollar back in 1981. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take another break and put my own ad in here. And then I'm going to come back with my next comic. 30 years ago, I walked into a comic store and I picked up G.I. Joe and the Transformers number one. A month later, I came back 
They say every journey has a first step. Every story has a beginning. This is mine. I may have begun my comics collecting career in earnest in 1990, but from the fall of 1986 until the fall of 1987, I was a regular at my LCS. So in honor of 30 years of collecting comics, I'll be recapping and reviewing all of them on the days they originally came out. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Origin Story, a podcast miniseries starting this September at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. So in the spirit of Batman v Superman, I figured that if I, if I took a look at the origin of the Superman-Batman team, I'd have to take a look at the end of the Superman-Batman team, and that would be in World's Finest, issue number 323, which is cover dated January 1986 and was released on October 24th, 1985, with a price of 75 cents. The comic book predates Superman number 423 by eight months, making this the very first of the Superman books, at least the ones that were left by the end of the Bronze Age, to see its end at the end of the pre-crisis DC Universe. Our story is called Afraid of the Dark. Our penciler, our creative team is Julie Cavalieri, writer, Jose Delbo, penciler, Alfredo Alcala, inker, Duncan Andrews, letterer, Nancy Houlihan, colorist, and Janice Race, editor. Superman flies through Metropolis on what seems like a peaceful night, but the problem is that it's not right. It's not night. It's 9 o'clock in the morning, and the sun never came up. The people are panicking, and the darkness is smothering even artificial light. The only people who don't seem freaked out by this are common criminals, of course, and they decided to take advantage of this particular problem to mug unsuspecting citizens. Superman stops them by taking a lamppost off its base and wrapping it around the group of thugs, and then he continues to fly on to try and figure out the source of the darkness. Seeing a light at the end of the tunnel of darkness, he flies toward it, and then he comes upon what looks like phantom wolves, and they attack him. Since they're magic, Superman's vulnerable, and we see the person leading the pack of wolves is a man who says that he is a master of terror named Nightwolf. We cut to a boardroom where a group of men are talking to a mysterious voice on a monitor, wondering why anyone would have hired Nightwolf to do the job they needed done because the man's a lunatic. The mysterious voice tells them not to worry because soon enough they'll have the source of Nightwolf's power and can get rid of him. At the Gotham train station, trains are delayed and people are mad. An employee of the railroad assures the people that she's trying to get everything figured out and then heads down to the tracks to see why the trains are so far behind and, he's, and she's attacked by a pack of phantom wolves. Thankfully, Batman is there and he takes care of the wolf, saving her. He then heads to the Batmobile to check his messages, where Bruce Wayne gets a message from a Dr. Moniger Zeringer. She has something that might be of interest to him, especially since whomever is covering Gotham and Metropolis with darkness is doing it using his money. Batman heads to Zeringer's office and she tells him all about Nightwolf, the man he is or at least used to be. And she used to work with him and they were romantically involved, but things soured and he made off with an artifact, a belt, which is the source of his powers, something he learned from an old shaman from the jungle. 
out somewhere in the country near a farm, and we know this because there's barbed wire and a bunch of farmers standing around, one of whom is holding a pitchfork. Nightwolf has an unconscious Superman, and he's holding court. He commands the wolves to kill Superman, but they hesitate because the shaman. Nightwolf starts rambling that the shaman can't have his power and threatens him, then commands the wolves to attack the shaman. The shaman begins to elude the wolves, then he starts using all sorts of smoke to keep himself hidden, while he attacks and rips the belt from Nightwolf, robbing him of his powers. And while the person who had become Nightwolf becomes weak, the shaman reveals that he was able to defeat them by creating an illusion using chemicals, especially those in his utility belt. He cuffs Nightwolf and takes away him away, and soon Superman wakes up, having not remembered how he got to the barn. He then starts reminiscing about Smallville says and says, yes, I spent a lot of good times living around places like this. And Batman interrupts saying, you almost died in a place like this. Superman says, I guess I have to thank you for it. Batman replies, save it. I don't want to hear it. You wouldn't have to be thanking me now if you'd handle the situation a little differently than the way you always do, flying right into the thick of things. You're faster than a speeding bullet. Slow down and use that super brain once in a while. The night, the shadows, those are my domain. The back streets and the back alleys, they're my territory. Leave them to an expert. The world almost lost Superman because of his foolish impetuousity. He was being impetuous. I'll save your neck any time, but I won't write your epitaph. Think about it. The bonds of friendship are forged of the mightiest steel, tempered in a flame that burns brighter than a thousand suns. For half a century, no man, no war, no cause has ever shattered those bonds. But this day, they have discovered a crack in the metal. We can only hope it is not beyond repair. The end. Over the years, I've heard not-so-great things about the tail end of World's Finest. I've always wanted to own this issue, not because I like buying bad comic books, but because I'm just a sucker for a series finale, both when it comes to television and when it comes to things like comic book series especially since at least up until recent years, long-running comic book series usually didn't end very often. I was fortunate enough to find this one in a dollar box at the Baltimore Comic-Con last September, and I have to just say, what did I just read? Okay, that was really snarky, I know, but this just seems really odd compared to the really fun team-up that I looked at in the first part of this episode. And it's nothing against the creative team. I just think maybe the thing was the concept of World's Finest was running out of gas at this point, and DC knew it was time to hang it up. After all, the Superman books as a whole underwent a massive, massive turnover later in that year, which culminating with you know whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow and then Man of Steel following it. And whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow is a story I have mixed feelings on, but at least I enjoyed reading it when I first read it. This one... Not so much. I mean, I understand that the title was ending and a whole new Superman was coming about, but the story is just really weak, especially for a title that started in 1941 and had an uninterrupted run since then. I know the numbering is not up there with where Batman, Detective, Superman, or Action were at the time because uh, World's Finest like quarterly and bi-monthly for a while, but a run of 45 uninterrupted years deserves a better send-off than this. Instead, Superman and Batman face off against what is basically a Scooby-Doo plot against a C-rate villain who thinks he's Belloc from the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, except he actually has powers, and his face doesn't melt. But because Superman's vulnerable to magic, it takes Batman to figure everything out. Now, I have nothing wrong with Superman being vulnerable to magic, 
because I do like it when writers don't go the kryptonite route all the time. I realize that he has to go down quickly because this is a normal 22-page size story, but man, this just reads like it's been phoned in. And then Batman's speech at the end seems entirely out of character for what I know of these two during this era. Granted, I wasn't reading the issues leading up to this, but while a, hey, what's up with you lately type of conversation is never a particularly bad thing, the conversation they do have is odd because Batman's all, you got in trouble. This is the last time I bail you out. Like he's a parent scolding a teenager who's been sent to the principal's office one too many times. And then look at, looking at what was going on in the month in other books, like this is the fallout from Supergirl's death in Superman, the continuing Nocturna and Night Slayer saga in Batman and Detective, and then you have Crisis on Infinite Earths number 11. There's a lot you'd have to do to shoehorn into this into what was then current continuity. But why not, like, I don't know, slap a this takes place before crisis or issue number whatever explanation on the story and then give us one last huge Superman Batman versus Luther and the Joker story or something or something that was a nice tribute to all of the many adventures that the two of them had together I mean say what you will about whatever happened to the man of tomorrow but at least Alan Moore went with the approach of hey let's throw all the villains at him which, by the way, is exactly what Doug Mensch did for the two-parter in Detective 566 and Batman 400 that closed out pre-Crisis Batman. The one more positive thing about this book is the artwork, though. I mean, it's all right. Jose Delbo's art reminds me of Pat Broderick's artwork from the late 80s and early 90s, which we'd see in stories like Batman Year 3 and those first issues of the Gerard Jones Green Lantern. Broderick, at least in my opinion, did it much better than Delbo does here, but this isn't awful at all. And the artwork and the coloring at least give us a sense of moodiness, which is what the story is going for. But it does not save it, and it doesn't even elevate it to the status of something that's underrated. In fact, for all the reasons that I mentioned about World's Finest being around for so long, it's kind of sad when you think about it. But... There are ads in this one, so let's take a look at the ads. Maybe we can salvage something. Ooh, the animal. Grip roaring fun. Make and play kits from Monogram. I love how like Monogram would come out with these model kits that were basically reproductions of toys that were on the market. I didn't I had a few of those. Break into the big time with Sugar Daddy, Sugar Babies, and Charleston Chew. I can down with some Charleston Chew, yeah. Get these big, long-lasting Nabisco candies and get a a great deal on a big-time digital watch. Wow! In 1985, 86, a digital watch was a pretty big deal, though, so I really shouldn't snark too much. There's a Fig Newtons or a Newtons Cookies Fruit Chewy mix-up for fig, apple, cherry, and blueberry, and the words are scrambled, and you have to fill them in on the newtons and there were the cherry newtons and the blueberry newtons were new um apple newtons by the way i don't even know if they make them anymore but back when they did those things were the bomb man oh they were so good it's like having little apple pies so good uh there's an elvira mistress of the dark t-shirt because boobs i didn't realize that the doctor in the flashback with the guy who became nightwolf was rocking princess leia buns there you go uh, the DC 1986 calendar uh, has artwork by various artists of various DC properties. I see uh, a Justice League. I don't know who did that. I think Luke McDonald did it. I have the Sword of the Atom, which looks like Gil Kane. It looks like Ambush Bug by Keith Giffen. 
that has to be a Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, Superman, uh, Sergeant Rock, obviously done by Joe Kubert, and George Perez did a did January, which was the new Teen Titans, uh, who were then consisted of Wonder Girl, Starfire, Changeling, Cyborg, Nightwing, and Jericho. And neon lace glow in the dark posters for three three for three dollars thing where you can have these sci-fi alien scenes that glow in the dark at night. Woo from the Pineapple Kids Club. God, the stuff we had in the eighties. There's a hodgepodge ad that's your classic hodgepodge ad. Ooh. What is ninja? You can be told these deadly techniques. Ultimate in self defense. One dollar for more details. Instant self-defense system, four ninety-five. Ninja combat system, six dollars. Ninja throwing star and cal caltrop, five dollars. Defense arts, Smyrna, Georgia. Dave's Comics in Richmond. Robert Bell is selling comics in Coral Springs, Florida. You can finish high school through the mail, and you can get muscles from Charles Atlas. Oh, you can join the Ninja Society as well. Lots of ninjas. Everybody loves ninjas. There's an ad for Amazing Man. Um, and then there is a stink bug on my letters page. Go away. Um, there is a ad for the Search for the Justice Society continues. Uh, every month of the pages of action-packed pages of All-Star Squadron. Another ad for Amazing Man. And uh, you have, you can mail away for a copy uh, for $2 uh, for subscription. And with their subscription, you can get a copy of 50 Who Made DC Great, which I actually had at one point. I don't remember what happened to it. Uh, and then there is the Oz. This looks like the Oz Wonderland War. Since the adventure continues at last, the characters from Alice in Wonderland, The Wizard of Oz, and Captain Carrot in a three-part miniseries and has to be uh, for the Oz Wonderland War. And then on the back is one of 6,000 prices, Starburst Fruit Chews BMX Sweepstakes. And that is it, really, but I'm not going to end on an entirely down note because, well, I don't want to. <laughs> what I do want to talk about is, at least briefly, is the movie that I'll be opening up uh at the end of the week, at least uh, as the time of this recording, because I'm going to release this episode on Monday the 21st. And then as Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice, it's a movie that, well, let's just say that I think a number of people will be going into this movie with their minds made up. It's actually kind of a shame. Not because I'm expecting this movie to be the most awesome thing ever, but because the ongoing hand-wringing and moaning and wailing about Man of Steel and Batman vs. Superman has really really been a drain during these last couple of years. I mean, the internet thrives on groupthink at almost a toxic level. This is a great example of it. I'm not saying that everyone has to get along or agree with my position on everything or anything, but it's always bothered me with the feeling that I get just from being online is that many people decide that this movie sucked before the first scene was shot. I bought my ticket. I'll be seeing a matinee on Monday the 28th, and my expectations going in is that I'll be giving this movie a grade of somewhere on the maybe the B range. I think it'll be all right. I know I shouldn't be going in like that. I should be incredibly excited. And I will say that I am incredibly excited to see Wonder Woman. The shots of Gal Gadot I've seen in the trailer look badass. But it pains me that I'm not more excited for this movie. 
Not because I don't know if it looks good or not, mind you, but because of really just all the bullshit I've had to hear on the internet for the past couple of years. I know it's only to get worse. So, here's my final thought. I'm hoping that I enjoy the movie, or at least that I feel that I got my money's worth. I'm also grateful that there are still stories and comics out there, like these old world's finests, for everyone to read. I'm I'm annoyingly neutral about this whole thing. And the purpose of this episode was just to have some fun with some Superman-Batman team-up books. While I'm not a Superman podcaster, and I'm a failure as a Batman podcaster, I hope I did these comics and these characters, at least for the hour that I've been here, wait for it, Justice. I'll be back next month with something totally different. Meanwhile, be sure to check out the remaining two episodes of 80 Years of DC Comics whenever they do come out. And as always, thanks for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review at illustrative purposes only, so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.